Well, it looks like you all hated me so much that you've given me this award for it. That it can be about the performance and not the politics. This moment so much bigger than me. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. And thank all of you who voted for me. And all of you who didn't, please excuse me. I deserve this. Thank you. And welcome back to the season finale of Academy Queens. I want to make an Italian movie. I want to live in an Italian movie. I want to be an Italian movie. Joey Gentile. And I'm becoming famous for my enemas. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And this is the class of 2009. We've reached the end, season four. Can you believe... I cannot. <laughs> I cannot. I cannot. Brandon, how are you? What's new? How's Baltimore? Tell me all about it. Oh, it's good. I just, um, I got the Criterion channel, finally. I got that yesterday. So mm-hmm. I've, I've bookmarked like 30 movies that they have on their platform that I hopefully will get to before they expire, uh, for the licensing of the movie expires and the Criterion channel loses it. But uh, that's pretty much all I did yesterday was just scroll through the entire thing and just add things to my list. So that's where I am right now. Did you just see uh, yesterday's announcement, the Barbara Stanwyck classic, The Lady Eve, is being picked up by Criterion? I did see news about The Lady Eve floating around, but I didn't realize that was it, no. Yeah, it was announced yesterday with uh, the next batch of uh, films that they picked up. For some reason, I thought it already was in there. I mean, like, half of Preston Surge's movies are already in there, so I probably just got them all confused. It's okay. Shit happens. Shit happens. Yeah. They're doing um, the Bruce Lee Greatest Hits Collection, the original War of the Worlds, Marriage Story, The Lady Eve, and Taste of Cherry, which I've never even heard of. Oh, I've heard of Taste of Cherry, but I've never seen it. I think it's from Iran, but I'm not sure. Uh, Yeah, not sure. Like I said, never even heard of it, so it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. It'll be interesting, it'll be interesting. But, four seasons, we made it to the last episode, we're so close to being in the most recent decade, it's insane. Mm-hmm. 40 regular episodes, I guess this makes it. Yeah, yeah. Not including the bonus stuff and the Patreon stuff. Is there anything from this season that really stood out to you? Um... Revisiting things is always fun and having opinions um, change. Like I remember Monsters Ball and Aaron Brockovich were two movies, or at least performances, um, that I had changed my mind on um, after revisiting them for the first time in years, and that's always fun. So I'm glad that I was able to get more appreciation out of Halle Berry and Julia Roberts' performance um, upon doing my homework for this season. Yeah, for sure, for sure. How about you? Oh, um, you know, it's really funny because this is the season that we've had the most guests on and it's, it's weirdly in like, it's weirdly intoxicating yet. It's weirdly exhausting. I feel like you'll understand what I mean by that with like how it has been to record because we've the amount of scheduling and people. And I mean, we had two guests alone that are in a whole nother continent, you know, shout out to B and Fritz and 
you know, it's, I feel like this, this journey of season four has been so rewarding, but at the same time, like I said, it's exhausting, you know, the, the shows with guests become almost double in length, which I'm not complaining, but it's just, it's like, okay, wow, we've made it. Like we made it to the end. We started with Michael Musto and we're ending it with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think we mentioned it in the episode, but, um, when we recorded with Fritz, the scheduling was so weird that he ended up recording at 1 a.m. his time in Germany. So he was up very late with us for an episode that went pretty long. So there's just a little taste of how uh, how crazy it can get here, scheduling yeah. guests. It's insane. And of course, like I said, we're coming up to the most recent decade. So the 2010s. Um, and then after that, we're all caught up with the women. So, I mean, we're going to have discussions on what we do next, but it's kind of weird. We started this journey last uh, January, really, is when we started recording, January of 2019. And we're almost there. We're almost at the end. It just it boggles my mind. Right. Well, the end since 1970. Yes. Plus a few bonus stuff that we've done covering the years, a few years prior to that. Yeah, I mean, which is nice, too, because, I mean, we're almost done with the 60s, and that's been all Patreon exclusive. So, you know, if you ever want to hear the 60s, you guys join us on Patreon. But, um, yeah, it'll be it'll be fun to see where it goes from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this year at the Oscars was a pretty big one. Um, not only – I, by the way, I'm very surprised that no one has ever called back Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin to host because I remember loving them as hosts. I think they were great hosts this year. Um, but this was a big year for a possible Meryl Streep win. I remember that. This was our introduction to Carrie Mulligan and a possible dark horse win from Gabriel Sidibe. But it was also a year that was pretty stapled in that Sandra Bullock was going to win for the blind side. <laughs> um, and Monique steamrolled everything. So it'll be interesting to see where we line up if we mm-hmm. agree with anyone. Right. So, uh, anything else before we dive into our final year? No, let's just uh, dive right in. All right. So, our supporting actress nominees of 2009 were... based on the novel Push by Sapphire. All right, let's start off with good old Penelope Cruz. She played Carla in nine. This is her third of three nominations in four years. Um, Get this, I didn't even know this going into Oscar night. She barely had any precursors. She had a Golden Globe nomination and a SAG nomination for Best Supporting Actress. In nine, again, Penelope plays Carla, who is the other woman to Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, character. She is a vixen, a beauty, um, who, despite the characteristic that her character has, what I mean by that, by being like the quote-unquote the other woman, she's just a woman who is really 
torn up and wants love in the end. And it doesn't really work out for her the way she wants her storybook ending. So, Brandon, what do you think of Penelope Cruz as Carla in Nine? Well, first of all, it is so cool that Penelope Cruz had this streak there in the second half of this decade. Three nominations in four years is pretty wild. Um, but unfortunately, I think this is her weakest of the three. I'm not really fond of this movie as a whole, and Penelope Cruz doesn't really save it for me in any way. I think she is a ball of fire in it. Uh, she's very, str- she has a very strong presence, but that's about where it ends for me. I feel like it's all energy and not as much character as I would like it to have. I'm not sure if that's just the fault of the film of this adaptation from stage to screen or what. I've never seen Nine performed on stage, so I can't really speak to that aspect of it. But she is pretty good in her performance um, moments here in Nine, like her phone call musical number that she has with Daniel Day-Lewis. She's sexy as hell. She has a very alluring quality to her. And in that regard, I think she's perfect for that moment in the film. Um, then later on, we get a little bit more, um, a little bit more of a tearjerker moment with her after she has attempted to kill herself with sleeping pills, I believe it is. And, uh, Daniel Day Lewis comes to her after she has been rescued, I guess you could say. And, um, it's pretty, um, heartbreaking in a way, but unfortunately, I think the movie kind of lets Penelope Cruz down a little bit. I think she's better than this and she could have been so much more. I think the movie around her just doesn't really elevate her in quite that way. And unfortunately she's not able to really rise above for me. I think it's just an all right performance. And considering how much I really like her in Volver and Vicky Cristina Barcelona, that sort of automatically makes it last place for me when it comes to Penelope Cruz's nominations. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly. I think this is all right. You know, I'm not wowed by this because we, Penelope Cruz essentially got two nominations. She won the first one back to back for the same role. This is a very similar role to her Vicky Cristina Barcelona role. So this one just has music added to it. Um, it, it's fine. I'm not wowed by it. This definitely feels like a filler nomination, uh, which is sad with, despite, you know, with everyone else who is in nine, which I don't want to get to just yet because we actually will have a follow up question to what I'm about to say here. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think she does just fine. Um, do I prefer it more than her Vicky Cristina Barcelona nomination? I don't really know. I think I'm very neutral on them both. I still think, you know, and I think you would agree with me, Volver is her best as we both uh, rewarded her and Casey rewarded her that too. Um, Yeah, I think it's just, it's okay. I'm not, this isn't one of those performances where I'm like, oh, I fucking hate this. And this isn't one of those performances where I'm like, yes, queen, work, bitch. I'm just very meh, as RuPaul says. Yeah, even though she is quite good in her musical um, performance, she doesn't have me on my feet and shouting, like you were saying. Like, I watch it, and I recognize that she is good, mm-hmm. but that's about all. She doesn't really move me or stir me in the way that I feel like she probably should. Yeah. 
I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just dive right into a question about Nine from Jackson DeStefano. Presuming that Nine has to get an acting nom, is Cruz the most worthy or Oscar-worthy cast member of Nine? Or would you have preferred someone else to get a nom over her? Now, I think I've said this before. At least I've said it to you. Uh, I don't think that Cruz is the most worthy. Um, I think the two most worthy people in Nine are Kate Hudson, but Fergie is, I think, the most worthy of a nomination here, who I would have loved to see get an Oscar nom. Um, I don't understand why Hudson nor Fergie were never in the conversation. Um, I know a lot of people say Marion Cotillard. I don't get it. She doesn't do anything here for me. And her being campaigned in lead really fucked it up because this is definitely an ensemble piece. Um, but yeah, I would say Hudson and Fergie would have had my vote. If one person had to be nominated, I would go with Cotillard. I find her more interesting. She's the character that I'm the most fascinated by. Um, I'm not really fond of the film or really any of the performances, to be quite honest, but Cotillard is really the one that if I had to pick one, as Jackson put it, it would probably go to Cotillard. I think she stands out in a way. She's, um, I guess the most emotionally vulnerable and not sure how to put it, but I just find her much more fascinating than these other characters in the movie. Well, look at that. Two very opposite opinions. Mm-hmm. I dig it. I dig it. All right. Anything else about Penelope? No. All right. Moving on. We have Ms. Anna Kendrick as Natalie Keener in Up in the Air. Um, this is her sole nomination so far. Going into Oscar night. Believe it or not, she beat Monique at something. So she had a win. Um, she was nominated at Golden Globes, BAFTA Critics' Choice, the LA Film Critics, Nash, or, um, I'm sorry, the New York Film Critics and the SAG Awards for supporting, but she wins the National Board of Review for Best Supporting Actress. Um, in Up in the Air, again, Anna plays Natalie, who is a woman starting a brand new career, who, uh, in a way, according to George Clooney's character, feels like she's getting in the way, so he has to show her the ropes. And as she's on the road, realizing what she actually does for a living, her world kind of falls apart with her boyfriend. And then she just kind of is like, you know what, fuck this. I'm going to be my own person and does her own thing, becomes a strong, independent woman at the end of her story. Um, so, Brandon, tell us about Anna Kendrick in Up in the Air. I really like Anna Kendrick in Up in the Air. Um, I think she might have one of the, probably the strongest arc of the three main characters in this movie. I really like how she comes in um, thinking she's this uh, revolutionary who's going to upend this entire business model. And she has all these cool tech ways of doing things. But then George Clooney, who is the, um, you know, the seasoned veteran of this industry, kind of upends all her plans. And um, she's kind of taken back a step and has to sort of start from scratch as uh, he shows her the ropes of how to navigate this very fucked up business that they have where they basically just fire people for a living and um, seeing her sort of figure out the art of fucking up people's lives and um, trying to master it. And then in the end, realizing that it's a horrible thing and she can't do it is a very very fascinating to me. Um, 
she sort of enters this movie feeling like she kind of belongs because she has a very cold approach to this very heartless business. And it seems on the surface that it would make sense. But as Clooney points out to her early on, you actually have to have some form of a heart in order to do this or some sort of guts in order to do this. Because as he demonstrates, uh, if you're firing someone over the phone or over Skype, they could just leave the room and, you know, there's all sorts of errors in her way of doing things. And, um, it's interesting, the reversal that happens, the things that she learns she needs in order to be successful, but ultimately that leads her to leaving the business altogether. And, um, I love that final shot of her in the airport when she's just like standing on that, uh, I don't know what you call it. Those like conveyor belts in airports that you stand on and it's like, you know, just takes you through the floor. I don't know what they're called. I love, I love that image of her just kind of coasting away because her, like her marriage is not marriage or her engagement. I'm not sure what they were falls apart and she's basically out of a job and she's, she has to start over once again, just like she did in the beginning. Um, all because this uh, really fucked up business situation. It's a very complex character, I guess. But I dig it. Um, so if you heard us on the bonus episode where we ranked pictures of 09, I was very vocal on not liking Up in the Air. I just find it very boring. Um, with that said, now that we can talk about the acting, I think... Kendrick is the most interesting person here, but I'm not really sure where nomination came into play. Um, I think it's a perfectly fine performance, but I'm not like ever zoned in on where award work came in here. Um, I love that she has this nomination, but I don't know. I mean, Kendrick had more to do in like a simple plan or even pitch perfect one to get an Oscar nomination than she does here. So I'm not really sure where that came to be. Um, you know, I definitely feel for Natalie as a character. I think what she goes through is a, is a great journey, but it's not like I'm wowed by this. Um, so yeah, just like Penelope, I think it's all right, but it's not anything for me to write home about. She does have a moment in this movie that is sort of stuck with me over time. And um, whenever I'm like out somewhere, like in a coffee shop or wherever people have their computers, and there's someone who's typing very hard on their keyboard. I type with purpose! That's the line that I think of. So she has that moment that is at least stuck with me. Yeah. So... Because every time I see someone just like clanking away on their computer and you can just hear their computer crying for mercy, you just think, I type with purpose. So I dig that. I also think this character really fits the time period and when this, mo- when this movie came out, this mm-hmm. um, recession period, because she's sort of that first group of young people leaving college, entering the quote unquote real world only for the real world to completely crumble around them and not be what they expected at all and to be out of a job before they know it, before they even have roots down. So I think this character 
in this film really speaks or spoke to the moment when it came out, just like the film as a whole does. So in a dramaturgical sense, I can see why Anna Kendrick's purpose in this movie really captured a moment in time. And um, I think it still ripples through to today. Yeah. I mean, the, the movie is definitely, like you said, important for the time. And it's kind of weird with what we're possibly facing again here in the future. I mean, no one really knows. But if you're going to make a sequel to Up in the Air, now's the, chi- now's the chance, Jason. What would yeah, you call Jason. it? Like, upper in the Air or <laughs> Up in the Air Chapter 2? I don't even know what you can call it. I have no idea. Could you imagine if someone, he actually if they actually did that and called it Upper in the Air? I'd be like, okay. Stop that enough. That'd be ridiculous. Right, right. Um, we have more questions about this, but we have to get through this line this whole lineup because all of our questions for this year are about these supporting ladies. So if you have nothing else on Anna, I'm gonna move on. I'm good. All right. Next up we had Maggie Gyllenhaal as Gene Craddock in Crazy Heart. This is her sole nomination. Get this, not a singular precursor, nothing going into Oscar night. And I love those type of nominations where it is a literal nothing going into this. I don't know about you. I think it's fascinating. Um, in Crazy Heart, Maggie again plays Jean, who is a single mom who uh, has a story to do for her local paper on the Jeff Bridges character, who she kind of falls in love with them. And she has a, she's, uh, has a young son who she's a little too trustworthy, some shenanigans ensue and she falls out of love with him just as fast as she fell in love. So Brandon, tell us what you think about Maggie as Jean and Crazy Heart. So I really like Maggie Gyllenhaal. I think she's fantastic. She's one of those actors who I will watch a movie just because she's in it. I've been fascinated by her for years. Uh, But like Penelope Cruz in Nine, I think she's better than this. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal is better than a supporting love interest character whose entire purpose in the movie is to serve the purpose of the leading man. Um, I find this character kind of boring and, uh, I'm not really a fan of Crazy Heart in general, but even Maggie Gyllenhaal, who I love in pretty much everything, doesn't really make me ever want to rewatch this movie. I think she is also like Penelope Cruz in Nine, perfectly all right in this movie. I'm not wowed by it in any sense. I think she hits her marks, hits her beats, says her lines, and she delivers them well. But it's nothing remarkable. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal only has one Oscar nomination. And yet when you look at lists of her best performances and rankings of her performances... Crazy Heart is seldom toward the top. And it's funny considering it's her only Oscar nomination, you would think that would be like the one. But it's not. Because Maggie Gyllenhaal is so much better than this. And um, I'm, I'm honestly kind of disappointed. Uh, not with Maggie herself, because I think she's perfectly all right. I just wish that this was not the performance that represented her with the Academy. Well. I am going to be on the 100% opposite side of you here. Um, I almost didn't revisit Crazy Heart because 
I saw it when it first came out, and I remember not being too impressed with it. And I actually watched this last night because I was like, you know what? I maybe I should. I am so happy that I did. Um, this movie, I, I like. I for the only thing I remembered about this movie is that for some reason I thought her son ended up in the hospital, and it's not the case. He ended up obviously being lost in that mall. But I, I'm not too like you know whatever. If we ever get to the actors, Jeff Bridges is one story, but. This movie is pretty much Tender Mercies Part 2. I mean, it even has Robert Duvall in it. But Gyllenhaal is a revelation here. She, I appreciated this so much more this time. And it actually got me to change my lineup. I'm just going to leave it at that for right now. Um, I'm where I'm putting everybody. Because she impressed the hell out of me. This woman, I know this woman. I've seen this woman. My mom was a single mom for 10 years. I, I think it might have hit me in that way. Um, and I, I, I know many of single mothers. And so I know, and I've been the only son of a single mother. So I know the struggle and the men who have come in and out of, the, out of her, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character's life. I've seen that in person. So this was like, holy shit, this is realistic. And you know me, I love me a realistic performance. When I forget that I'm watching acting, I, it takes me on a whole nother ride. And I think now that I'm 28 and I watch this now compared to when I was 17 and watched it, I just have a whole new appreciation for it. I do agree with you with the fact that, you know, when you look at Maggie Gyllenhaal's filmography, Crazy Heart is rarely at the top. But I think it should be because this is chef's kiss. This is beautiful. Um, you know, her not having any precursors going into this. This was a stacked year, but this was also a stacked year where it was being bulldozed by a specific person. Um, I, I'm a little upset that she didn't get anything other than this going into it because I think she deserves it. And I wish more people would see Crazy Heart just for the sole reason of Maggie Gyllenhaal and, of course, Colin Farrell, who I think definitely deserves a supporting actor nomination for that. But that's a whole other story. Um, I like this. I like this way more than I did at 17. And I'm actually a little shocked that you didn't like it, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just doesn't stand out to me in quite the same way. Um, I guess Crazy Heart is similar to, um, it's kind of like Helena Bonham Carter, how we tend to think of her more eccentric and out there performances as being more what defines her. And when she does something more down to earth it stands out and so yeah crazy heart does stand out for maggie gyllenhaal in that way for me and she does give a very realistic grounded performance and she does feel like a very recognizable person but um i don't think it's a bad performance whatsoever i think maggie gyllenhaal is a wonderful performer and she brings a whole lot of life to everything that she does it just doesn't really stand out to me when it comes to my favorite Gyllenhaal roles um I don't think it's it's just not my favorite I guess I don't know maybe it's just a matter of just personal taste but I don't think she's bad whatsoever I don't want to um give that impression it's just um I just wish there was more appreciation for her in the world and if I had to pick one or two Crazy Heart would probably not be it but I'm glad that she definitely has something um because Maggie Gyllenhaal is just one of those actors who's been so invested in the indie film world for so long that 
she just doesn't really do movies that get much Oscar attention. So when she does a movie like Crazy Heart, which is this, you know, perfect vehicle for its leading star, I'm glad that she was able to get some sort of trickle-down recognition. And like you said, she didn't really get much in the way of precursors. So, I mean, I would guess that people watching this movie for the Jeff Bridges campaign, if you want to put it, might have seen her and thought, oh, we have never really given Maggie her time. This would be a great time to do that. And so they just sort of brought her along for the ride, um, not just because she happened to be there, but because she is just that good. So even though she is good in Crazy Heart, it's just not my cup of Maggie Gyllenhaal tea, I guess is what I'm saying. No, I get it. Trust me. I, I w- Including this, I wish Maggie at least had two, um, the other one being secretary. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I'm glad this one, like I said, I'm a little shocked that, uh, like I said, that you didn't like it as much, but I'm glad that this was one that we got a totally separate things out of. So that's always refreshing to have. Mm-hmm. So anything else from uh, Maggie? I think I'm all right. Well, let's go to this year's winner, Monique as Mary in Precious. This is her sole nomination and win. Going into Oscar night, she won everything. Um, This was her Oscar to lose. She wins Golden Globe, BAFTA Critics' Choice, Independent Spirit Awards, SAG, New York Film, and LA Film Critics Association. In Precious, Monique again plays Mary, who is the mother from hell. She's abusive in every sense of the form. Um, Every sense of the form horrible person cares about nobody other than herself and is just awful as a person as a mother as a daughter as everything um give us your thoughts about monique as mary and precious well this is an impossible performance to ignore uh monique is a true powerhouse in every sense of the word here in Precious. And I know sometimes that can have a negative connotation. Sometimes um, when we think of powerhouse performances, they can be distracting or not match the tone of the movie, or it can seem a little self-indulgent. But those things do not fit with this performance. Um, I think Monique's strength here completely serves the film that she's in. She is everything that she needs to be in order for us and for Precious to fear her and to understand how much of an obstacle she is in the life of Precious and how much of a villain she is in so many ways in this story. And it's a, it's a performance that reverberates long after the movie is over. Um, she's a person you would definitely not want to interact with if you saw her out on the street or something or in the store or at a bar. Um, she's a dangerous person. And this, there's a moment in the movie that I've only, I've seen this movie a few times because it's not exactly a movie that I would define as rewatchable. It's not a movie that you're like frequently in the mood to watch. I don't know. Maybe some people are, but not me. 
But uh, there is a moment, I think it's after the, what is she, a social worker comes to their home and Monique has like the wig on and she's all dressed up for the meeting. And like the moment the social worker leaves, she literally tosses her grandbaby onto the couch. Like it's an infant child that was moments ago in her arms that she just like throws aside. And it kind of kept, I kind of have to catch my breath every time. Because that's just how callous this woman is. And all of the moments of physical abuse that we have witnessed beforehand um, really make that moment work. Because you understand in that moment that this is something that this person would actually do. This wasn't just an act of shock that Monique and the filmmakers were squeezing in there. Um, it's hard to watch her be so abusive here. Uh, I would imagine this is a very triggering film for a lot of people, probably a movie that a lot of people shouldn't watch, um, unless they're absolutely ready and sure, because Monique holds nothing back here. Uh, she really goes for every moment that she has, every syllable of dialogue that she is given, she eats it up, and um, I love the reversal of fortune, or whatever you want to call it, in the end, when they're in uh, Mariah Carey's office, I think it is, mm-hmm. and uh, Monique just completely breaks down. Because you don't really... You don't really sympathize with her in that moment, because you know who she is and how horrible she is, and by that point, she's more or less beyond forgiveness, um, both by her daughter and by the audience. And yet at the same time, you kind of want to forgive her, but you know that you can't. But um, you're also kind of glad in a way that she's getting this comeuppance. That scene brings about some very complex feelings from me anyway. I'm not sure if that goes for everyone watching the movie, but I think that's a real testament to Monique and Lee Daniels, who I think take a lot of really harsh um, streaks of black and white in the beginning of this movie, and then in the end paint with so many shades of gray that you're not really sure where you stand. Perhaps some people are very sure where they stand, but... um, I'm not so sure in the end, but I do know that Monique is um, something otherworldly here in Precious. Holy shit, how do I follow that? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think this is a what the critics and children like to call a tour de force performance. Um, This is not a performance that you can shake easily watching. Uh, or and after you watch it this is not something that you just forget about either i mean in the pop culture zeitgeist monique's performance is probably the most remembered in the last 20 years of this whole supporting actress category i would argue um for many reasons behind the scenes drama and obviously who and you know who Mary is. Um, I remember 
I was 17 when this came out. I saw the trailer. I was sitting in at the nook, the breakfast nook in, in the side area of the kitchen at my parents' house. And I remember seeing the trailer for Precious. And something about this movie hit me. It became like my go-to must-see movie of 2009. And I remember just from the trailer, and this was even before I was like really into the Oscars, I was like, oh my God, she's going to win an Oscar for this. Um, that's the power of this performance. Even seeing the trailer, you can see that Monique did not come to play. She brings out every crevice of evil of who this character is. And there are people like that out there. You know, I said when we were talking about Maggie, I was like, you know, I've, I've met Jean. I've seen Jean. I'm pretty sure many people have seen Mary or had Mary as a mother. Um, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. It's horrifying. It's disgusting. The idea that this character has her daughter perform oral sex on her and then still quote unquote loves her, but she clearly doesn't, you know what I mean? Like she, she, she's willing to blame every aspect of this abuse on the fact that her husband, Precious's father, wanted her daughter over her, but she allowed it. Like, you know, in the breakdown scene at the end, which I don't care how many times you've seen this movie, I feel like everyone cries at that. She blames it all on her daughter. This is the evil of this character. It's weirdly beautiful, if that makes any type of sense. Um, it's phenomenal. Monique is so good here. Yeah, I mean, I struggled to describe that breakdown scene or whatever you want to call it in the end because I'm genuinely curious what emotions that scene evokes from people. Because I could see people watch that and think, Fuck that woman. There is nothing redeeming about her. She can go to hell. Whereas there's probably people on the other side of the spectrum that are more like, you know, I see what she's had to deal with. I see where she's coming from. I understand why she lashes out. Not necessarily condoning it, but understanding how someone could behave that way. How they could go so far off the deep end and express themselves in these horrible horrendous ways so i'm actually really curious i think lee daniels directs that scene very fucking well so um i'm very curious how people feel about it but um as far as her her villainous nature goes yeah mary is mary is bold she is big she is terrifying as hell but like you were saying i completely believe that there are hundreds thousands of her in the world she is not so evil that she becomes a cartoon she is really tapping into something monique is something truly ugly about motherhood and abuse and drugs and all sorts of things and creating something really tragically beautiful in the most fucked up way kind of like you were implying there um i understand why monique has not had the career that she should have um it only takes a quick google search to figure out why that is 
But um, she absolutely deserved so much more after this uh, performance. It's um, it's kind of infuriating that she hasn't had the career that she should. Yeah, it's um, this is a breathtaking performance. I feel I, I'm going to be bold here with this. I feel that the way we reacted because this this is a very much our generation movie. Um, in the sense of, I feel this is how people reacted to Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice for that generation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I feel like it, once in a generation there comes the performance that really blows you away. And I think this was the one that did, did it for us. Okay, I can see that comparison. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So, brava to Monique. And you know what? It's, if I ever, or we ever, or you ever, or whoever is listening to this, if you ever get the chance, as an actor, you have to go to a place. You have to go to a place if you're going to play a character. If anyone listening, or us, or whoever it is, gets the chance to interview Monique one day, or have a conversation with her, I would be so curious to hear on where Mary came from. Where that scene came from. You know, I know she's she spoke a little bit of it uh, before regarding her own abuse, but I think you said it perfectly. Like when you watch that scene, you may have this reaction or that reaction. That reaction could be like, I understand her, but I think in order to, un- to play a role like Mary, you have to, uh, you, you have to know and understand that she maybe means well. But I think the only person who can only understand that to the fullest was Monique. Yeah. Understand all the factors that pushed right. Mary to where right. she ended up to what we see on screen. Yeah. And again, so, not, not condoning or encouraging or supporting in any way the ways in which she releases her feelings, but getting it, you know? Yep. It's a very tricky line to, to, to walk there because you don't want to veer too far in one direction and seem like you are, uh, you're on her side. Because if you're on her side, then you need to rethink things. But there's a difference between, um, condoning and um investigating yep side note um on a little maybe happier note um did you know that the mariah carey character was mariah carey was actually an 11th hour replacement for helen mirren yeah i have read that and i honestly cannot picture helen mirren in that role and i'm very glad mariah carey played it because mariah carey is fantastic in that performance Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And we actually have a question regarding Mariah Carey, but we have to wait till we get through this all because, like I said, the rest of the questions are about the lineup as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, anything else on Monique? Um, I, I'm sure it will come back to her when we talk about Gabby and the rankings. But yes. for right now, I'm all right. All right. Our final nominee in this category that year was Vera Farmiga as Alex Gorin in Up in the Air. This is also Vera's sole nomination, which is weird to me. Hello, The Conjuring. Um, all nominations, Golden Globes, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, New York Film Critics, and SAG. And up in the air again, Vera plays Alex, who is the love interest Minx. I don't know if that's the word that I want to use for her, but it's going to be Minx character who meets George Clooney. They bond on the fact that they literally travel for a living. And there's a possible romance, but whoops, turns out she's married. Um, what do you think about Vera as Alex and up in the air? I really like her in Up in the Air, actually. Um, I just love Vera Farmiga. She's uh, one of my favorite 
actresses working today, especially, I, I think I also like her a lot because she does a lot of genre film and she still gets the respect she deserves, which I think is fantastic. Usually genre actors are looked down upon, but she has managed to uh, really make that work for her. In Up in the Air, she um, also has a certain coldness to her. Uh, she is a little bit older than Anna Kendrick and a little bit, um, I guess you could say wiser or a little more um, into the real world. She's been around the block a bit and she has a sort of a no nonsense wise uh, attitude about her that I really dig. And uh, I like her scenes with George Clooney quite a bit. Uh, there's, I find the scene so cute. I think it's after they've had sex for maybe the first time they uh they both travel for a living and uh they decide they want to meet again and considering oh, they're, yeah. never, they're never in their home cities how is that ever going to happen they like bust out their laptops they're like sitting there in their hotel room in their underwear just like going through spreadsheets like i'm in tampa on this date i'm in phoenix on this date oh, this is when i'm in minneapolis and they finally find a time in which they like i think they have like a layover in the same city at the same time and they decide they're going to meet again then and that's just how they're going to continue this uh relationship and i find that so unique and kind of endearing in a weird way but uh i also just really like vera's presence here she has a very similar air about her to um virginia madsen and sideways in a way i would actually i've actually said this for a while i think vera formiga and virginia madsen could play siblings in a movie and i would buy it 100 percent. like they have a very they have a, a Similar enough look, and they have a very similar energy. I would completely buy that they were real-life sisters. But anyway, Vera Farmiga is hilarious in this movie in a way that is kind of cutting. I kind of like that uh, this sort of icy um, attitude that she has. Uh, I just really dig her quite a bit. I'm also just a huge fan of Up in the Air. It's a movie that has grown on me over time. I have a feeling it's one of those ones that'll just keep getting better for me as I get older with it. But uh, Vera Farmiga is pretty good here. Um, I, for some reason, get... I don't know why this is, but when it's revealed in the end that she has been having an affair on her husband the whole time, that this whole relationship with George Clooney, um, that Clooney was the other man, I get kind of mad at her in the weirdest way. Like when Clooney goes to her home and she answers the door, it's like Christmas time, I think, and it's like snowing. And uh, Clooney realizes that her she lives with her husband and she has children. He has this like broken face, this reaction to learning that. And I kind of get mad on his behalf because I so wanted them to work because they feel so perfect for each other coming from these very seemingly heartless corporate worlds and somehow completing each other. And it turns out the whole time she had a quote unquote perfect life back home. She just wanted more, which feels so corporate to me. She completely embodies the world in which she works. And um, I really dig it. I think Vera Farmiga is fantastic here and this should not be her only nomination. No, it shouldn't. Would you really quick agree with The Conjuring for a nomination with her? I'd probably have to revisit The Conjuring. I haven't seen it since it came out, but um, she's an actress who I think just deserves more. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I love Vera Farmiga. I think she's great. I mean, I remember the year she was up for uh, an Emmy for Bates Motel, and I really wish she would have won that. Um, but like Anna Kendrick here, I can't put my finger on it where they're pulling Oscar-worthy work. Um, I, I think Vera does have a presence that's stronger than Anna in the film, but Anna's character, like, I remember more things about her. Um, I think this is fine. This is, this is, I don't want to say it's subpar Oscar nomination, but it's like, you know, it just, it makes me happy that she has one. Um, I'm not ever blown away by what she's doing. I do think that Alex, like Mary, like Jean are all real people. I just don't, I don't see where an Oscar is here for her. Um, so I'm not going to rain on anyone's parade or go on about that. I, Cause I just don't have anything to say about it. You know, like it just doesn't do anything for me. Um, but Vera Farmiga has one, and I would love for her to not be a one-hit wonder at the Oscars. So please, someone give her something to do <laughs> so she can come back. Yeah, we kind of have uh, opposite reactions to Farmiga and Gyllenhaal. Like, we both love both of these actresses. Right. Yeah, we have completely different <laughs> takes on these two nominations. Because I right. love Gyllenhaal, but wasn't crazy about Crazy Heart. You love Farmiga, but wasn't crazy about Up in the Air. And we we're both on the opposite ends. Kind of interesting. Very interesting. So, you know, it's, it's going to be funny. I'm just on, honestly, like the most interesting thing about the ranking for supporting for me is just to see where we put people. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is the one I'm really looking forward to on who's going there. Yeah. So, um, do you have anything else on Vera before we get to the questions? Um, I think I'm all right. All right, people, buckle up because we have some for sure. Starting with Steven at FIFO Film, Monique definitely steamrolled the competition. Who was the runner-up? And do you think Kendrick and Vera split the votes? Um, I'm going to say Kendrick was probably the runner-up because she's the only one to win anything uh, going into this outside of Monique. I mean, she won the uh, National Board of Review, so on paper it makes sense. Um, But at the same time, weirdly, I want to say it could have been Gyllenhaal because she had that real out-of-the-left-blue nomination. And Crazy Heart did win two other Oscars, so it, you never know. Yeah, um, on paper, I guess it makes sense that Kendrick would be the runner-up if you want to sort of consider that the science of it all. Uh, Kendrick makes the most likely sense for a runner-up, but um, considering Hall does get that out-of-left-field nomination, it shows that she was at least on people's minds. Um, I'm not sure if the nomination was her recognition and that was only ever going to be it for her. Um, or if, you know, it was that dreaded word coattails, uh, people just watched crazy heart and they had such a fondness for Jeff Bridges and Hall was just an actress on the ballot that they had seen. So they checked her name, who knows? Um, but I guess it makes sense to me that if I had to pick one person who was probably the closest to being a runner up, it was probably Kendrick. But I have a feeling that Monique won this by a mile. Oh, I would say by 10 miles. Yeah. Um, regarding the vote splitting, I've been very vocal about that before. Vote splitting is not a thing. I think it's just an excuse that people um, use because past has shown us that if there are two nominees from a movie, most of the time one of them wins. Um, so, you know, it's not a thing. I think it can be a thing, but it's 
It's not necessarily a rule. No. It mathematically can happen, but just because two people from the same movie are nominated in the same category, it does not mean that they will split the votes. But right. mathematically, it is possible. All right. Next up, we have from Greg Adams. How did Julianne Moore miss for a single man? And was she probably sixth? Go ahead and start that one. I really like Julianne Moore in A Single Man. Now, that's a movie I have not seen in many years, so I the specifics are a little foggy for me. But I remember watching that movie for Colin Firth's nomination and thinking that Julianne Moore was fabulous in it. So I could see how she could possibly be a sixth, um, considering Firth does get in here. Um, Single Man was definitely a movie people had watched, uh, considering it gets nominated elsewhere. And uh, Julianne Moore was certainly in the club by that point. So I could see how she could possibly have been a sixth. And I do think she would have been worthy of a nomination had it come her way. Um, I think, yeah, I think she just missed out. I mean, clearly, if someone took anyone's spot in this lineup, it's Maggie Gyllenhaal. That's just due to the record of precursor she didn't get, which was zero. Um, was she probably sixth? Honestly, I don't think so. I think Diane Kruger was sixth. I mean, she did get the SAG uh, nomination, after all, for supporting actress. And as we do know, SAG is the biggest voting block of the Academy, or the actors are. Um, so that is a clear sign of usually who goes in. Now, granted, we do have years where then nothing matches up, but I mean, this lineup was such, there were so many supporting actors or actresses that year that it could have been anybody. I mean, shit, it could have been Judy Dench in nine for all we know. You know what I mean? So I don't know, but my gut would say Diane Kruger actually was six. That also makes sense. They were probably six and seven. Not sure which yeah. order it would have gone in, but I could see how they could be six and seven. For sure, for sure. Um, let's see, moving on. Oh, speaking of Diane Kruger from Joe Juvia, any ladies from Inglorious Bastards? Okay, any ladies from Inglorious Bastards would have made either lineup. Oh, he's asking, do we think either of them would have went, uh, gone into supporting her lead? Um, I think, honestly, uh, Melanie Laurent's choice to campaign and lead really hurt her. Her character, she's a part of an ensemble piece. If you're an ensemble, everyone's supporting. Um, I th don't think she would have gotten into lead. She possibly could have gotten into supporting, but I definitely think, like I said, Laurent was sixth. So I think, or I'm sorry, uh, Kruger was sixth, so Kruger could have gotten in for sure. Yeah, I think I'm more into what Laurent is doing in Inglorious Bastards. So if I had to pick one myself, I would probably vote Laurent. I also agree agree that she probably belongs more in supporting. I don't really think of her as a lead in that movie. Um, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around Melanie Laurent being the star of Inglorious Bastards. You know, if you had to pick like one person's name to put at the top of the poster. Um, I wish she had gone supporting. Uh, perhaps she could have stood a chance. I don't know. But um, on paper, it looks more like Kruger's game. Mm -hmm. Um. Next up, hold on, my phone just locked on me. Okay, from our good friend Fritz. What do you think of the other supporting ladies in Precious? Um, I think they're amazing, but Mariah Carey is the standout, and I really wish that Carey would have gotten in for a nomination here. 
Um, now that we've kind of gone through the nine ladies and bastards and precious, my ideal lineup for this year would have been Monique, Carrie, uh, Kruger, Gyllenhaal, and uh, Fergie. Uh, but yeah, I think the standout of the other supporting ladies in precious would have been, um, yeah, would have been Mariah Carey. Yeah, Mariah Carey is fantastic and precious. I'm reminded every time I watch this movie how good she is. And I am positive that Mariah Carey could have had a fantastic film career if she wanted it. She is so stripped down in precious that she is unrecognizable. Now that does not, that's not a, you know, a necessary component to being a good actor, but it certainly helps when you're Mariah Carey. And people don't recognize you as Mariah Carey in a movie, you know, without putting on tons of like makeup in a Charlie's Theron kind of way. Also, Mariah Carey just has a really great sense of delivery and presence and emotive connectivity to the people she's sharing her scenes with. It's, uh, it's also just a very subtle and low key performance in a way that you would not think that Mariah Carey would give, knowing, you know, her music career and her diva persona. How much of that is real and how much of it is for publicity, I'm not sure. But I think Mariah Carey really could have had a fantastic career if she wanted it. Uh, maybe she does, I don't know. But I'm sure there's tons of modern day auteur directors who would have a spot for her in their movie if uh, she was so inclined. And I think she would be great. I would also like to shout out probably one of my favorite lines in the movie is also what I love and consider our good friend Kevin Jacobson, where Joanne is like, my favorite color is fluorescent beige. Um, that's a huge standout for him. I mean, it's not a supporting character by any means, I mean, it is, but um, just shout out to Kevin Jacobson for being in Precious. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Maybe she wrote that review of his podcast. <laughs> that that same person who fucking told Kevin that he sounded like beige is that person who gave us that nonsensical bullshit about not making, like, we just scream and tongue click on this bitch. I don't fucking know. Um, Have we ever tongue clicked? I don't think we've ever tongue clicked. I think that was the first time I've ever tongue clicked. Oh. Um... Let's see, we've already talked Inglorious Bastards. Um, this is really quick. I just want to shout this person out. Ebert's Thumb uh, specifically goes towards me. Uh, can I go outside these films? If so, you being a comedian, Joey, I'm curious what your overall thoughts are on Funny People and if you would have liked to have seen Manor Plaza get a nomination supporting. I've never seen Funny People, so I don't know. Um, I'm sorry that I disappointed you on that, but sorry about that. But yeah, that's it. We have on Supporting Ladies. All right. Well, moving on to the leads, the leading ladies of 2009 were. There's a moment in the blind side when Sandra Bullock, playing a tough woman who gives no excuse for her behavior and who tries not to show her emotions, is told by a young man that she's taken in, that this is the first time that he has laid down on a bed. And everything you need to know about how that character feels is in her eyes. I had the great pleasure of directing Sandy in the film Hope Floats, 
and I get to see firsthand the beauty of her work, which she does with such ease. And some miss the delicacies and the complexities inside of it. But the breadth and the depth of her heart, which she allows us to share, is that intangible, magical quality that you can never miss in a Sandra Bullock performance. Every British Prime Minister should end up in a relationship with a wonderful queen. I had that privilege in the Oscar-nominated Best Picture where Helen Mirren won for Best Actress for her portrayal of Elizabeth II. Now, I spent a lot of time on the set with Helen, and after a while, a thought kept reoccurring. Is it wrong to be so wildly attracted to a queen? I mean, she was Elizabeth, but then after a few hours, uh, the makeup would start to wear off, and her spiderweb tattoo would start to appear on her hand, which, of course, only made her even hotter. <laughs> Royalty with a tattoo. Brilliant. And this past year, she somehow matched that amazing performance with another one, playing the Countess Sophia in The Last Station. She showed us a woman's guile and heart and pride and desperation, a portrayal that only comes from an actress with immense talent and one who is never afraid to take a risk. It is that combination, Helen, of talent and courage and, yes, that tattoo, that makes you our queen, our countess, and an Oscar nominee. Congratulations. Carrie Mulligan. Um, Carrie Mulligan has fallen in love with me twice, actually. Uh, not with me personally, but with the characters I played. Uh, once on stage opposite her, and then once in the film, which she's nominated tonight. I'm afraid I treated her badly. I'm sorry, Carrie, I should have told you that I was married. But, uh, <laughs> out of her amazing depth, grace, and intelligence, came unforgettable portraits of heartbreak and complexity. Her performance in an education is indeed just that. We are lucky that she is so young because we have a lifetime of her work to look forward to. Being honored is still strange to you, I imagine, but given what she's already shown us, it's something you're gonna have to get used to, darling. She was a student trying to earn some money to go to college. On Monday, she skipped school to audition for a movie called Precious. On Tuesday, they called her back to meet the director, Lee Daniels. On Wednesday, she got the part. And tonight, she is sitting at the Academy Awards in the same category as Meryl Streep. fairy tale what is the authenticity gabby with which you played the harsh brutal moments in our movie precious where did that come from 
the transformation from your own, your own joyous, positive, radiant, fun self to the heartbreaking despair of that girl, Precious. Where did you learn how to do that? When we look at you, we see a true American Cinderella on the threshold of a brilliant new career. And Precious is but the first of many adjectives coming your way. And they are all great. Congratulations, Gabby Silva. Meryl, what can I say? That like most people in the world, I have been in love with you for years. That the two movies we did together were the highlights of my career. That you were brilliant in both of them, as you are in everything. That the mantle of most acclaimed film actress of our time could not be worn with more grace and humility. But everyone already knows that. What they don't know is your kindness, your collaborative nature, your great good humor. Those things make you a dream to work with and a wonderful friend. It is in the area of awards and accolades, however that you show a certain, how can I say this, a certain selfishness <laughs> that is unseemly. That is why I have spearheaded a movement in the Academy to cap the number of nominations per actor at 16, which means that this could be the last time that anyone will have to stand up here and say, despite their personal feelings, that Meryl Streep is quite simply the best. All right, let's start with our winner for the year, Sandra Bullock, winning for The Blind Side. This is her first of two nominations and so far her only win. Going into this, she was basically the one to beat because she takes the Golden Globe for Drama, the SAG Award, and she ties at Critics' Choice. And she is nominated for some smaller critics' prizes, as well as the MTV Movie Award and an Image Award, which I find curious. In The Blind Side, Sandra Bullock plays Leanne Tui, who shows that anyone can pick their self up by their bootstraps and then go on to play in the NFL, so long as a kind and well-off Republican woman from the Deep South whose husband owns a chain of Taco Bell restaurants thinks you have the body to get into her alma mater's football team. So, how do you feel about Sandra Bullock in The Blind Side? <laughs> Shade. I don't know if I have to say anything after that. I mean, fuck. Um, okay, let me just say this. <laughs> the Blind Side is an awful movie. Yes, it is a lifetime movie that got a theatrical release. And it's corny, and it's a big issue story-wise. But Sandra Bullock is not bad here. She's doing just fine. I, it's not a bad performance, but I think this is one of those years that really stand out to people because of everyone else in this lineup. Um, I, I, I would say that I think Sandra Bullock does better in Miss Congeniality, which she was nominated for a Golden Globe nine years earlier, in that 
than she does in this. Um, 2009 was a hell of a year for her. You know, she had um, a huge smash hit with the proposal. She won the Razzie for um, All About Steve, and then a few days later won an Oscar for The Blind Side. Uh, remember, Julia Roberts was supposed to play this role, and she turned it down. Um, and she also turned down the proposal that Sandra did. It, it's it's fine. It's a fine performance, but it's it's it definitely looking back on this is. Let's just say that. How about you? Yeah, I'm not. I'm going to try not to rag on the movie itself too much. And if listeners want to hear more about the movie in its entirety, they can check out our Patreon episode on the Best Picture nominees of 2009. Um, Sandra Bullock, though, I think she's fine. Um, and the Blind Side, I don't think she gives a bad performance. She just happens to be in a very misguided movie. Uh, Sandra Bullock is a performer who is very aware of how to use her face and body. She is an actor who performs from the top of her head to the tips of her toes. I feel like she's one of those people who always knows what to do with her hands. Like, you know how actors sometimes have no idea what to do with their hands and they just do all sorts of weird, random things with them? Sandra Bullock is someone who I think is very attuned to how to use her entire being as an instrument. And she's very expressive and it's very easy to read her. And that's not saying that she doesn't hide anything, that she lacks subtext. I think she is just able to communicate with the audience exactly what she needs to in order to get the utmost reaction out of the people watching it. This is a movie that makes people feel something. It makes people feel a lot of things, but it's it makes a certain group of people feel something on a very deep down, heartfelt level. And I think Sandra Bullock is the one who is most able in this film to bring out those emotions. Uh, she has a connection to the audience through the camera that a lot of actors in a lot of movies don't always have. It feels like Sandra Bullock could have played this character with any director, and she as a performer would have been successful at what she was doing. She's just a masterful performer, and I wish this had not been her first nomination. I think she's been great for literally decades now, and uh, I think she's perhaps one of the most... I don't know if underrated is the right word, but I think she tends to be undercut as a serious actress because she does so many movies that people enjoy, if that makes sense. Like she has this blockbuster, I don't know, resume that's for some reason people look down upon it. And I think that's horrible and bullshit because Sandra Bullock proves time and time again that she is a standout performer who is always serving the movie that she's in, if that makes sense. She always seems very aware of what movie she's in, and she uses her face, body, and voice to function in it to the best of her ability and elevate the movie in any way that she can. Um, I think she's a very uh, undervalued performer that doesn't get quite enough credit. I'm not a huge fan of The Blind Side, but I think she is doing some pretty 
decent work here that is worth admiring if you just zero in on her. Yeah. I I feel like we share the same sentiment there. Yes. Do you have a favorite Sandra Bullock movie? Um, I mean, Miss Congeniality, I feel, is like quintessential Sandra Bullock to me. Um, Speed Tactical is a whole magic. lot of fun. That's, a, that's one I should probably revisit. I haven't seen that in years. That's but, my favorite of hers. Yeah. Um, Speed is fun. Uh, that's some early uh, Sandra Bullock. I mean, it's a completely bonkers movie. But it's it's a perfectly fun hour and a half. Um, we haven't gotten to Gravity yet, so I'll hold back on Gravity. But I love her in The Heat. I think she's really funny in The Heat. Oh, yeah. That actually might be my favorite. Also, Miss Congeniality 2 has its moments. Also, it has Regina King, and that's always fun. Um, Speaking of, yeah, The Heat is definitely it. That should have been her second nomination, was The Heat. Mm -hmm. Her and Melissa McCarthy should have had co-lead nominations for The Heat, because they are hysterical. Yeah. That's my case. That's it. Okay. Okay. Uh, next, we have Helen Mirren, nominated for The Last Station. This is her fourth of four nominations, so it's uh, her most recent. Going into this, it seems like her only uh, major-ish win is from my new favorite uh, awards body, and that is the AARP Movies for Grownups. <laughs> I feel like they are my people. <laughs> and they rewarded Helen Mirren for The Last Station. Uh, Helen Mirren's also recognized at the Globes with SAG and with the Indie Spirits, but she does not pick up any of those three. In The Last Station, Helen Mirren plays Sophia, wife of the world-famous author Leo Tolstoy, who in his old age has decided to swear off private property and material things and possibly his entire estate so uh, Sophia basically struggles to convince Tolstoy and manipulate his disciples into not giving everything they work so hard for away to the Russian people once he has died. So how do you feel about Helen Mirren in The Last Station? So I want to start off with saying The Last Station I haven't seen since it came out and then I revisited for this. And it just this movie as a whole felt very much your shit being such a big book guy. Um, but it's, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the film. Now, the movie, I remember not loving it, and I still don't love it. But when he- when Helen Mirren is on screen, it's my favorite part of the movie. She's so good here. Um, I, finally, that I'm so glad that we've gone through all of Mirren's nominations here. Because this is my favorite of her nominated performances. I mean, there is not one sour note that I find here. She's over dramatic. She's over the top. She's funny. She's lovable. She's, she, she, she walks a fine line between Shakespearean drama and reality TV drama in a way. Like, God, what is that scene where she goes to like possibly kill herself? She's like running towards the dock and she's like, I'm going to do it. Ah! It's just like, it's like all over the place. And I love it. I eat it up. I, this is a, this is a performance that I will sop up with a biscuit because it is, it gives me life. It brings me so, so much joy to finally talk about this because I've been waiting since 1994 when we first talked about her. Because for me, all of Miriam's nominations up until now have been very drab. This is the one that I think is like, 
beautiful Mirren. And yet it's her most forgotten, I feel. Well, no, I would honestly probably say the Madison King George is her most forgotten. This is down there, though. But she doesn't get enough credit for this one, and it's a shame because she deserves it. Yeah, I'd say out of this lineup, uh, Mirren in The Last Station is probably the one that people talk about the least, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps have seen the least, maybe. Um, I hesitate to say that The Last Station is a great movie, and yet I kind of enjoy it. It's kind of a fun little mess of a movie, honestly. Um, Helen Mirren is really fun in it. Uh, she goes to some very uh, kooky places at times. I feel like she and her director were not quite on the same page as to what this movie was and how her character functions in it. Because I feel like the director of this film, whose name escapes me right now, takes it very seriously. It's like a very cut and dry period piece to the person telling the story. And yet Helen Mirren has a whole lot of fun with it and takes it to an almost at times slapstick place about as close to slapstick as you can get in this sort of setting without it just becoming ridiculous and just outright farcical. Like there is a moment where Tolstoy and his people are talking in like his study or office or whatever it is and Sophia Helen Mirren's character steps out of the window this is like a second or third story window onto a ledge and like scales the building to get to the next window which is the window to the study that they're in and she's like spying on them through the study and there's a shot from like down below on the ground looking up at her like 50 feet in the air held up by nothing but the ledge that is like only a few inches wide and then she like tumbles through the window pulling the curtain down with her and it's this total like 1930s hollywood moment that in any other movie you would laugh but here it just feels very out of place because it feels like helen mirren is giving a performance that doesn't quite match the movie that she's in she's good i really enjoy helen mirren she goes through so many um, hoops here of emotion. She's kind of all over the place at different uh, points in this film. She has some very quiet moments where she's really digging and investigating her co-star, like with the scenes with James McAvoy, who's supposed to be spying on her. And I think she knows that. So she's kind of like spying on him while in conversation with him. And then there's the mo- her moments with Paul Giamatti, who outright hates her and makes no secret of it, and she hates him, and they have they shoot daggers at each other with their eyes, and it's fun as hell. Um, but Helen Mirren, I think, is having a ball here. She doesn't feel restricted, uh, like a lot of actresses in corset dramas, if you want to call that, do. Uh she seems to be having a blast here, and um, I wish that whoever had directed this movie had leaned a little bit more into what Mirren was doing and told this story a little more playfully, because this movie kind of drags at points from a direction perspective, and had it had a little bit more life, and had the actors had a little more fun with it like Mirren did, the movie could have been a little bit more enjoyable to general audiences. I think it feels a little too stuffy at times, 
even though Mirren is sort of the opposite of stuffy here. She goes into like a little bit more of a melodramatic, but sort of still low-key melodramatic place. Um, so yeah, I enjoy Mirren. I'm just not entirely convinced that she and uh, her movie match each other. Yeah, and you know we're not going to get a chance in the next decade to talk about Mirren. So I, I almost feel bad for her, though, because after this, she really became almost the Thelma Ritter of nominations in the next decade. Like there were all, there are so many almost Oscar nominations. Just reading the list, which, so I, I piled these up between the Golden Globes and SAG together, which means like, usually that's, those are the two that'll kind of get you in. Um, Hitchcock, The Hundred Foot Journey, Trumbo, uh, Woman and Girl, Gold. I mean, those, one, two, that's four nominations in a decade that almost happened for her. She hasn't been nominated since this. Mm-hmm. So it's it'll be interesting to see if she can return because something like Hitchcock, for example, she got all the precursors and then missed out on the Oscar. Right. So it'll be interesting to see if she ever returns and if she can ever win a second. I'd love her to return. That'd be great. Yeah, for sure. Uh, next, we have Carrie Mulligan, nominated for An Education. This is so far her first and only nomination. Going into this, uh, you could say she was, I guess, a possible winner, even though that seems uh, difficult to fathom, because she wins BAFTA and National Board of Review and a bunch of small critics' prizes. She's also recognized with the Golden Globes, SAG, Critics' Choice, and um, some more critics' prizes. In An Education, Carrie Mulligan plays Jenny, a teenager in 1960s London suburbia, on her way to university and a picture-perfect life when a playboy twice her age enters the picture and detours things for her. So how do you feel about Carrie Mulligan in An Education? Mulligan's good here. Um, I can see why she got her nomination. Um, She's... She commands the screen in ways that actors twice her age cannot. And that is where her nomination came from. When she's on, you're fixated on her and no one else around her. Um, It's beautiful. It's almost like she's dancing in a way. Um, And it's really good. I, I can, I like this. I like this a lot. Um, She's, this remind, and I know I've brought this up before, but this reminds me of what Lynn Redgrave does in Georgie Girl. It's got that 60s London feel. It's got that rebellious character nature to it. It's, it's, it's really great. Um, I think I'm more shocked at the fact that this is Mulligan's sole nomination so far. Um, especially with things like Shame and, uh, I would even say The Great Gatsby was worthy for her. Um, yeah, it's, I think that's the most crazy thing about this is that we she hasn't been back in over a decade. So more Carrie Mulligan, please. Yeah, I think this is a tremendous outing for Carrie Mulligan um, that really sort of put her on a lot of people's radar. Uh, I really dig an education and the sort of cynical nature it has on the back burner. Um, so Carrie Mulligan in this movie... She's a teenager in the 1960s, and basically her life is going to be determined by Oxford University 
or is it Cambridge? I think it's Oxford. And it doesn't actually have anything to do with her education. Not really. Her parents' whole purpose, mostly her father's purpose, to getting her into Oxford is to get her to meet a husband, a, a smart, well-to-do, hopefully from a wealthy family husband at Oxford so that she and the family will be set for life. And I feel like it really speaks to the moment in which the movie came out where um, a lot of people in the younger generations have this sort of mixed these mixed feelings about higher education and whether or not it's worth it and whether you really need it and how much getting one can determine or not determine the direction a life goes and i think carrie mulligan in an education is very interesting to watch because in the beginning she has these very uh bulleted goals for life, like what she wants to do and how she's going to succeed. But then these little opportunities pop up, like with the Peter Sarsgaard character and Rosamund Pike and all of them, where she realizes there's, there's more to things than an education and, um, an education in like the, uh, I don't know what to call it, the academic sense, I guess, because there's, you know, more to life than that. And she starts to, let loose a little bit and have some fun. It's interesting to see her go from being this buttoned up, perfect um, high school queen to kind of being bad, I guess you could say, and uh, sort of just enjoying herself and seeing where this character goes is so fascinating. The arc is uh, so cool to watch. Um, I really dig Carrie Mulligan here. She has such a presence to her and a palpable energy in this movie in a role that doesn't seem on paper like it would have any of those things. And perhaps with a lesser actress, it might not have. Uh, but Carrie Mulligan brings it all through. And it's kind of shocking that she hasn't had a nomination in the decade since. It feel, This feels like a performance that would be the first of several Oscar nominations. I know it's only been 10 or 12 years or yeah, something like that since, and she has a long career ahead of her, but it's nuts that she hasn't really been that in the running since. Like she's had a couple things like people talked about her briefly for shame and Mudbound and things like that, but she hasn't had a, uh, a vehicle of her own quite in the same way since. And I think that's a, uh, that's too bad because Carrie Mulligan tackles some really interesting themes here. And um, a lot of the themes are in conflict within her. And she brings them all out. A lot of the movie is explored sort of in her own mental state. And she's able to personify all of it. All these complex feelings and thoughts. So I really dig Carrie Mulligan in an education. Um, yeah, I'm just, like I said, I'm really, really sad that I, cause I definitely think she should have had a supporting actress nomination for shame. This is just another thing where I'm like, I can't believe this is her only one. There's a lot of soul nominees this year. 
who should not be sole nominees. Yeah, that's a uh, it's really unfortunate, actually. Category is sole nomination. Yeah. Anything else on Mulligan? Negative. Well, our next uh, sole nominee is uh, Gabare Sidibe, nominated for Precious. Yeah, this is her first and only uh, time here at the Oscars as a competitive nominee so far. And um, going into this, she wins the Image Award, the Indie Spirit Award, and she wins a National Board of Review Award for Breakthrough. And going into this, she is recognized with the Globes, BAFTA, SAG, Critics' Choice, and a whole bunch of city and regional critics' prizes. In Precious, uh, Gabrae Sidibe plays Precious, an abused and illiterate teen who is pregnant with her second child, who enrolls in a special school in the hopes that it will change the course of her life for the better. So how do you feel about Gabare Sidibe and Precious? This is one of those times where you watch a debut performance and you finish this movie and you do two things. You go, holy shit, there is no way this is her first performance. And then you pick up your phone and do the second thing and you Google and you try to find out everything you can about this actress and you watch every YouTube video you can, and then you realize what a powerhouse, because the, the person she, she you see on screen in this film is not the person showing up in these interviews. And it's a complete 180, and it shows the talent of Gabby tenfold. Um, like I said when we talked about Monique, I watched that trailer at 17. It was my most anticipated film of the year. I was just as blown away with Precious as a whole, as a film, as I was Monique, and then as I was of Gabourey. I am still dumbfounded by this. I think this is such a great debut performance. I it, it just, this is the type of performance that you dream about, that you can give. And even... I don't want to sound like a broken record because I don't know what else to say other than just fucking magnificent, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, this is... This is heartbreaking. This is... The character... I mean, God, there's... there, There's that scene where she gets pushed down by all the kids and you want to reach into the screen and give her a hug and fight these kids and, you know... This performance here made me excited to watch every Gabby Sidibe performance since. Um, she uh, was the biggest reason why I was so hooked into American Horror Story Coven. Um, the character of Queenie came back and I think her part of Hotel and then Apocalypse were the best parts of those seasons. Like she does Empire. It's great. She did Seven Psychopaths to follow this up. And yes, she's in it for like two scenes and she was the best part. Just like this film and her performance made everything that Gabrielle Sidibe does brilliant. And I will also say there is a dark side to this because you're, you get entered into Hollywood and you get told by Joan Cusack, and this is known, you can Google it, that you need to leave because you are too big and too, you don't fit the mold of Hollywood. When Gabby entered the scene, she was met with a lot of criticism of her weight. 
and it was horrendous and it was not welcome. And I mean, you had someone like, like I said, Joan Cusack who said that to her and it was not pretty. And it also showed the side that if you look at her resume since she's never been the lead of a movie, she's a lead actress, Oscar nominee, but she's a lead actress nominee who is also black. So it shows the issues that she faced coming in and the issues that she still faces now. Where are those roles for her? It's, it's beautiful, but it's sad. Yeah. It's, it's really shitty when uh, an entire film industry is uninterested in making movies about people like you. Um, she is a plus size black actress. And unfortunately we don't get very, very many movies led by people who look like that. And, um, it's a really shitty thing because those stories are valid and they're worth telling and there is an audience for them. But, um, the problem with this industry and, uh, Gabourey Sidibe is absolutely worthy of them and more. I think it really says something when you can star in a movie opposite Monique and still stand out. Monique does not drown out Gabby here. Any other performer very easily could have. Monique is like, it is a larger than life performance in the best way. And, she, and yet she does not steal the spotlight from Gabrielle Sidibe, perhaps for moments that call for it in the film. But as a whole, this is still Gabrielle Sidibe's movie. She is still the star of it. It is still her story. And that is how strong of a performer she is. That just when Monique takes that spotlight from her, Gabby takes it right back. And she has such a high emotional IQ as a performer that she is able to tap into exactly what Precious is feeling in any given moment and draw that out from the audience. We see many sides of Precious throughout this movie. We see the very dark sides of her life when she's home with her mother, when she is getting ashtrays thrown at the back of her head, knocking her unconscious on the kitchen floor as she bleeds out. And then we get moments of levity. When, when she steals that bucket of fried chicken, I laugh and go, yes, queen, that is your fried chicken. Because that is like, that's her moment to really shine and show that Precious is not, she is not defined by her victimhood. She is a victim of circumstance, and she does not deserve what she goes through. But she is so much more than that, and she will not be that forever. The moments in the classroom with her, with, uh, I guess her classmates, uh, I find funny as hell. Like uh, with Joanne and all of her eccentricities, and the scenes with Paula Patton, who I think is also great here. We didn't mention Paula Patton earlier, but I think she's fabulous here, and she brings out the best in Gabourey Sidibe. It's almost like she, as a scene partner, uh, Paula Patton, adds layers to Gabby's performance and brings her up even higher. 
um, this is a movie that does not, it does not keep sinking lower and lower and lower in the sadness and the darkness. It really is a roller coaster of highs and lows and emotions for the characters. And I think Gabourey Sidibe really nails each moment in the life of Precious. And her evolution over the course of the story, going from being this, um, this illiterate young woman who probably would not make much of herself due to the environment in which she grew up. And by the end, it's so triumphant when she has her kids and she has her education and she's able to read and write. And it's, um, it's a really moving conclusion. And, uh, I think it's has a lot to do with Gabourey Sidibe's intelligence as a performer and knowing exactly who Precious is in any given moment of this film and making the evolution of her believable every step of the way to the point that you are cheering in the end. So I think this is a wonderful outing for Gabrielle Sidibe, and she also absolutely deserves more roles and more nominations. Unfortunately, can't be nominated for movies that aren't getting made. So those movies need to be made so that she can get back to the Oscars. Yeah, there's, I don't know about you, but the scene that really, well, there's, there, there, I mean, the whole movie, but like the two, I think that really tug at my heartstrings here when I think of this movie is when she breaks down with Paula Patton in the classroom and she's like, I'm actually getting weirdly teared up just thinking about it right now. Um, she goes, nobody loves me. And then Paula's like, your baby loves you. I love you. And that, that look of hope, like it's the first time someone's ever said, I love you to her after everything that she's been through. She does more in that 30 seconds on her face than most actors dream to ever do. Mm -hmm. And it, like I said, I'm getting a little verklempt just talking about it. Um, and then there's this, this scene early on in the beginning where Precious just thinks that she could be so much more beautiful if she were light-skinned. Mm -hmm. And it kills me because like, like the idea out there that there are Marys. There are also many Preciouses out there. And I think this movie did such a beautiful job, despite how horrific this movie can be. How, how life really is for a lot of people. And I just, Lee Daniels, Lee Daniels needs to come up in the conversation more when it comes to, to the director's lineup this year, because he what he did was masterclass. So this movie as a whole just is an A plus for me. Yeah, to build off a little bit what you were saying with um Gabare Sidibe's facial acting, kind of like Sandra Bullock. Like I was saying how Sandra Bullock acts with her entire being. I feel like Gabare Sidibe does that here too. She does some very interesting things with her voice. She does not speak in this movie how she speaks in real life. And I feel like a lot of people don't realize that. That this precious voice is put on for this film. 
And she is also very aware of her physical being as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It's in fact, it's built into the character. I feel like you need to be aware of the person playing precious would need to be aware of how she is taking up space. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean, that is part of the struggle of this character and why she feels so ugly and unloved and why she at times feels as though she might just be deserving of all the abuse that she receives. So Gabare Sidibe is also playing with every square inch of her body in a similar but different way than Sandra Bullock does in her movies. So I think Gabrae Sidibe has a lot more going on for her as a performer than a lot of people are willing to realize. And um, I think she's miraculous in uh, Precious and she really needs more roles to show all her different talents. Cause I know she's got them. Mm-hmm. I would just like to say one more thing and that it's two claps for Gabby Sidibe. Well, our final leading lady is Meryl Streep nominated for Julie and Julia. This is her first and only Oscar nomination in the year 2009 going into this. <laughs> She wins the Golden Globe for comedy. She wins the New York Film Critics, and she ties at the Critics' Choice Awards. So she was the one that tied with Sandra Bullock. And she is also recognized with SAG, with BAFTA, and with the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards. In Julie and Julia, Meryl Streep plays Julia Child, the real-life world-famous chef, as she learns the arts of French cooking and rises to fame in the hearts of American housewives and on their televisions. So how do you feel about Meryl Streep and Julie and Julia? Brandon, buddy, would you rather, (laughs) which I'm okay with, would you rather change this podcast into talk about the AARP awards? It's my new favorite uh, group of awards. (laughs) I I have a feeling it is. Um, I love Meryl Streep here. Holy shit. Okay, everybody knows that Julie and Julia Julie's section of this movie, the Amy Adams part, is fucking awful. Julia, however, is the best part of this movie. And and that is because of Meryl Streep. Meryl had a very interesting 2000s. Every year that Meryl was nominated in the 2000s, she almost won. Adaptation, Devil Wears Prada, um, uh, Doubt, and she she, uh, ended with this one. Like, very possible that she could have won here and this was a very big possibility Meryl I think that's why she which we'll get to next season but I think that's why she uh, that played a big part into her win in 2011 because it was like okay she hasn't won for this many years and she's not giving you any bad performances in between here in the 2000s I mean I remember watching Oscar night and thinking oh my god this could be it um she is Julia Child here. She is Julia Child to the point where I see Julia Child now and I go, that's Meryl Streep. I can't say that for anybody else. That is delicious for a lack of a better word, talk about Julia Child. Um, and how many times have ever, has everyone go, like, try to imitate her, like, I'm Julia Child. Like, all the time. 
And I think people, I think for our generation, it put Julia Child on the map, and that's thanks to Meryl Streep. I mean, she is delectable. Um, and I know I said this with uh, The Devil Wears Prada, but her playing off of Stanley Tucci, those two together are brilliant. Hello, give me more Tucci. Um, yeah, I have no complaints here. This is amazing work. Amazing work to finish out a great decade for Meryl Streep. Yeah, I think Meryl's great in Julia and Julia. This might be one of my favorite biopic performances. I'm usually not big on biopic performances, but I think she is amazing in this movie. Um, she embodies Julia Child so well. I mean, I think you're correct uh, when you say that she uh, introduced a new generation of uh, movie people to Julia Child. Because I feel like this is where I learned about her when this movie came out. Um, I'm also a little mad at myself because I'm seeing here in my notes that when I rewatched this movie, I made a note for what my intro to this year, this episode should have been. And I really wish I would have, uh, I should have said, and I'm as hot as a stiff cock. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. That should have been my intro, which I wrote here for myself and completely did not see until this moment. But, um, I think she's great. Meryl Streep is so... She is so specific as an actor in all of her gestures and looks and facial expressions and her inflection. She's, she's very aware of everything that she is doing. And that really helps her here because Julia Child has some very specific mannerisms and she has a very specific way of speaking. It's one of the most recognizable voices in pop culture. And Meryl takes it all and makes it her own. Um, yeah, she, um, Julia Child is recognizable to a lot of people because of Meryl. Like you were saying, people might see Julia Child or hear Julia Child's actual voice and think that it's Meryl Streep that they're listening to. And yet at the same time, it doesn't feel to me like Meryl Streep is trying to be a carbon copy of her. It seems like she is just doing her Meryl spin on Julia Child. Um, it's a very interesting thing. I'm not sure. Maybe it doesn't make any sense at all what I'm saying, but I dig it. Whatever it is that Meryl's doing, I think she is such a, such a keen, um, not imitator or a mimic, but like she is just able to nail all these little mannerisms and ways of speaking and bring out the the heart in the character. She finds the emotional core in the person and what makes them so special. Because Julia Child, if you really think about it, she was not really the greatest chef of all time. She just had a brilliant personality and a way of digesting what were very seemingly complex recipes. And I guess in many ways they are complex to a novice cooks but she was able to take it and convince millions of people around the world that they could do it too they didn't need a french culinary school degree in order to cook these french dishes and people connected with her and they saw them themselves in her and i think meryl brings that to life when i watch julie and julia i want to be able to cook in quite that way like, I'm able to cook well enough to, like, not die and feed myself, but I want to be Julia Child when I watch that movie. 
Um, it's a very special performance from Meryl Streep. Uh, I think it's brilliant and I really enjoy it. And I think it's one of Meryl's performances that should probably be talked about more. I mean, I guess it is one that people talk about a lot, but it should definitely not ever leave the conversation. This movie too, and here's the, even the, the funny thing too, even with me being able to um, speak French or some French, um, I can never pronounce this ever. Beef bourgogne, beef bourgognon, I think is how, you know what I'm talking about? The, the dish, the big dish in this movie at the end. Is that the one where she, where Amy Adams is going to cook it for the, the author? Yeah. And she ends up burning it or something. Yes. So the beef bourgognon, it, I always wanted to make that dish because of this. I would also like to learn how to pronounce it. I've never been able to pronounce that word. Um, that is delicious. But this is definitely a movie too, where you get so hungry watching. You're like, ah, oh, food. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's it yeah i think the <laughs> pun intended it's a delicious performance yeah yeah you get hungry watching the meryl portions of this movie and you get thirsty watching the amy adams portions because of chris messina it's a perfectly balanced just film gonna ask i'm like is that because chris is in there i love too that they reunited for sharp objects mm-hmm. it was fun watching this movie after having seen sharp objects and knowing where they would go after this right right that awful Amy Adams haircut in this movie, though. Um, we have a question about Meryl. It's actually our only leading lady question. That kind um, of surprises me, actually. I know, right? From Andrew Carden. Do either of you, like myself, prefer Streep's turn in It's Complicated to her nominated one in Julie and Julia? I would need to rewatch It's Complicated. I don't think I've seen it since. She was up for a glow. Was she up for a glow for that? Globe against herself, yep. Yeah, so I think I watched it back when she was up for the Globe, but I haven't seen it since then, so I can't say for certain. But um, it's entirely possible that I might. But uh, I do like her in Julie and Julia, so I'm not sure. So I do like her better, and it's complicated. Um, I, I, I I have a special connection to that movie, which I don't know if I've ever even told you, but story time. Um, really quick, though. I think she's really good in both. I think she's phenomenal in both, but... Um, I just love the film that's complicated, so I I do like her better in, in that. Um, it's complicated was my very 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 first film audition. Um, there was a subplot that was deleted. Daryl Sabera from Spy Guy or Spy Guy Spy Kids ended up getting the role, um, but I auditioned in Chicago. Actually, I was like 16. I flew out there for two days to audition, and um, it was about the it was the role. This kid met Meryl online, and they were flirting. Like it was a heavy subplot and they ended up going to meet each other in real life on a date and it's a 15 year old kid Hmm. and where that would fit in the movie watching it now i don't know i didn't read the full script i just read like the 10 pages or so that this character had that's all they gave us at the audition um they gave us like the full part which is like like i said like 10 pages long um, but yeah, I remember being so upset at 16 for not getting this role and then finding out that the spy kid got it and then it got deleted. So I was like, ha, fuck you. But so that's my little story too. It's complicated, but no, I do like Meryl better and it's complicated than Julie and Julia. Okay. I'll have to revisit that one. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Shall we get to this ranking? All right. All right. As a review, your nominees this year were Monique and Precious, Anna Kendrick and Vera Farmiga. 
in Up in the Air, Maggie Gyllenhaal in uh, Crazy Heart, and at number five, Penelope Cruz for nine. I'm also putting Penelope Cruz at five for nine. Um, yeah, I love Cruz. Just um, this is her weakest of her three nominations. So that's all. And agreed with that. So number four, I'm actually going Vera Farmiga in Up in the Air. Um, she's fine. She's Vera Farmiga. I love that she has one, but there's nothing that screams Oscar work here for me. So four. Uh, my three and four are kind of interchangeable, but I guess right now I'm going to go with Maggie Gyllenhaal for Crazy Heart. Um, love Gyllenhaal. It's just, um, it's not the performance of hers that I would have nominated. And I know I was, I probably came off as very harsh when I first started talking about her, but I do love her as a performer and she is not bad by any means in this. I just think that she has done more interesting things and, um, I just want better for her. So, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal is only my number four for Crazy Heart. Well, my number three, if you were paying any attention to our conversation earlier, I kind of gave it away and I kicked myself for that. Um, Anna Kendrick in Up in the Air. Um, again, there's not really Oscar worthy work here for me that I could see like a nomination. Um, but she does, and I think it is, you're, you know, you, you hit it on the head. The I type with purpose is the most memorable thing in that movie for me. So because of that, she's going to get through. Uh, my number three is Vera Farmiga for Up in the Air. I love Vera Farmiga so much, and I think she's great in Up in the Air. Um, but I think her co-star and Monique have a little bit more going for them in terms of uh, character uh, development and impact on the film. So Vera Farmiga is only my number three for Up in the Air. Well, number two should come as no surprise because number one is a clear winner. Maggie Gyllenhaal is my runner-up. I think she would have made an amazing runner-up possible winner if Monique had not been here. Um, Monique, though, there's no denying that this was her win. This was her win from the trailer. This was her win from the get-go when the film came out. She steamrolled this season. It is an amazing win, an amazing performance, and therefore I also agree with the Academy. Yeah, my runner-up is Anna Kendrick for Up in the Air. Um, She has a little bit more character stuff going for her than her co-star Vera Farmiga and uh, she has a little bit more of an impression for me um when the movie's over I I have a better sense of who she is um when the movie ends but uh, Monique's win here is undeniable uh she wins it by light years uh this is a true powerhouse performance in every sense of the word and if she had lost this uh the Oscars would have been canceled that's all. <laughs> well, we agreed who five and one were. Yeah. Well, um, your leading ladies, as a reminder, were Sandra Bullock in the, bri- uh, the Blind Side, Helen Mirren in The Last Station, Carrie Mulligan in An Education, Gabourey Sidibe in Precious, and Meryl Streep in Julie and Julia. And I'm going to give Sandra Bullock number five for The Blind Side. I think she's perfectly fine in it. Um, I'm just not really a fan of the movie and it's, uh, kind of difficult to get through it as much as I like her individually as a performer. If you just narrow your scope to only ever be looking at her while the movie's going, she's always doing something very interesting and it's clear that she is a brilliant actress, but, um, in this lineup, she's only getting number five for me. I agree. Sandra Bullock in five, um, she just happens to be, like I said earlier, 
her win is so hated here but now because it's like everyone else around her is doing so much more. Um, I think when she won her Oscar, she said, did I really deserve this or did I just wear you out? I even think she kind of knew. <laughs> so, Sandy, you're at five. Helen Mirren is number four for me. I love Helen Mirren, and she's doing some very interesting things here. Even when the movie, The Last Station, is dragging, Helen Mirren is always someone you can look at, and she's doing something active um, that you can uh, zero in on and uh, keep your mind going. But um, I don't think she and this movie are completely on the same level, and um, it's not my favorite Mirren uh, nomination by any means, so she's only going to get my number four. My number four is actually going to be Carrie Mulligan. Um, she's great here, but I know we usually save this for number three, but the everyone else in this lineup is doing way more than her. So she's good, but it's she makes a good third wait one third runner up for me. Well, Carrie Mulligan is my number three. Um, she embodies so many of this movie's thematic complexities while being able to craft a fully rounded, believable human being and take us on a journey through her highs and lows and we can relate to her and she has really just everything going for her. But um, I find something about Streep and Sidibe's performances just a little bit more engaging for me as much as I really like Mulligan on like an intellectual level. Uh, she's only going to get my number three for an education. Number three for me is Meryl Streep. Um, like I said, I think this is iconic in the way that it, it introduced a whole new generation to Julia Child. And even now, because of that generation, when you hear Julia Child, you think, oh, that's Meryl Streep. Um, she's great. I wouldn't have minded this being, you know, a possible win for her. But for me personally, three at best. Uh, well, Meryl Streep was able to make my runner-up spot because I do find her delightful as hell in Julie and Julia. Uh, she's hilarious, and she's all of the above here. It's a fantastic biopic performance. But um, Gabourey Sedebe is just on another level for me. Um, I don't really know what to say that I haven't already said before. I'm kind of at a loss for words here. Um, it's another performance. I'm, I'll use the same word I used for Monique. It feels undeniable. It feels like she really captured a moment here in time. And it feels like this really should have been her Oscar. It feels like the time should have reflected itself with her. So um, I'm going to go ahead and give it to her. I'm going to correct history here and say that the Oscar for lead actress should have gone to Gabourey Sidibe. I would also like to correct history, but I'm going to do it in this. No, I'm kidding. Helen Mirren is the runner-up. Gabri Sidibe should have won here. Um, yay, we agreed. I do not know the last time when we agreed on both categories, but I'm very happy that we agree here. Um, Mirren is great. I think this is her best nomination. It's, I think, the most for me, the most enjoyable of her uh, one, two, three, four nominations. Um and the only reason why I would ever want to revisit ever, ever, ever again, The Last Station, um, is Mirren's performance. Sidibe, what other time in this podcast have I ever choked up just talking about a performance? Hello? I mean, that should have told you right there. 
I hope it told you guys right there. I hope you know me well enough by now. We've spent 40 episodes together. Um, yeah, bravo. Should have been hers. I don't, I will never understand how Sandra Bullock won this. Ever. Ever. Um, wrong, wrong, wrong. All the way around. Gabby Sidibe should have won this. Yeah. Yep. Um, I wasn't really surprised by your wins. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I would have been surprised if Monique had not been the winner. I wasn't sure about lead. I had a feeling it was going to be Sidibe, but for some reason I thought Streep would be the one, if not Sidibe. But um, yeah, I was pretty unsurprised. I was pretty sure it was going to go for the precious women for both of us. Yeah, when I had mentioned that my lineup had changed, um, like I like I said in the beginning, I hadn't, I hadn't seen Crazy Heart in years. So originally, Jillian Hall was at four, and everyone else was just bumped up once Kendrick was my runner-up, which we would have matched there. But yeah, rewatching Crazy Heart, Jillian Hall was my easy runner-up, like almost within the first ten minutes of her being on screen. So that's that's what I meant by my lineup changed. Mm-hmm. So, um, per usual, little bonus for you guys: we do the ranking of the actual winners. Now, despite our feelings of each person, I mean, we we may give a comment here or there if you guys have listened to us ever since we started. Um, we're going to rank the actual winners of um, the decade that the Academy gave it to. Although, I am curious for you really quick. Do you want to change it up this year by just actually going who was number one first and going downwards? Or do you want to start off again at 10 and figure out who the first one is? Um, I think 10 makes sense, starting with 10 and going up to the best. All right. Well, as a review, your supporting actress winners of that year in order were Marsha Gay Harden and Pollock. Jennifer Connelly and A Beautiful Mind. Uh, how did I already mess this up? Wait, who did I mess? Catherine oh, Zeta-Jones. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Catherine Zeta-Jones in Chicago. Renee Zellweger in Cold Mountain. Kate Blanchett in The Aviator. Then we had uh, uh, Rachel Weisz in The Constant Gardener. And then, I do not have these in order, so forgive me. Uh, Jennifer Hudson in Dreamgirls. Tilda Swinton in Michael Clayton. Uh, Penelope Cruz in Vicky Christina Barcelona, and then Monique in Precious. Um, number 10 for me, not only because of... Well, no, actually. Number 10 for me is Jennifer Connelly. Um, I, she's in the wrong category for me, so that's the biggest thing, and that's why I have her there. For me, uh, Marsha Gay Harden is number 10. Um, has nothing to do with her performance. I'm actually very fond of her performance. But for me, this is the most egregious of the category frauds. So um, that's the only reason Marsha Gay Harden is my number 10 of the supporting actress winners of the decade. Well, my number nine is actually Catherine Zeta-Jones. Again, like Connelly, and I should have mentioned that too. Connelly's not bad. She's just in the wrong category. Zeta-Jones is a lead. She won for supporting here. So she's good, but she's a little bit better than Connelly, but she's only at nine because of category placements. Jennifer Connelly is my number nine. I'm on the fence about her category placement. I honestly see it going either way. But um, she's not bad, but she's not really great to me either in A Beautiful Mind. She's just fine. So um, she only makes my number nine spot, all things considered, for A Beautiful Mind. Number eight, the best of the category fraud ladies for me is Marsha Gay Harden. Um, great performance. Wrong category. 
Um, so she at least gets eight. She's not the worst of the category frauds, but she's unfortunately no higher than that. My number eight is Rachel Weiss for The Constant Gardener. This is a performance that I ended up liking a little bit more um, than I had when I first watched it way back when it came out. But um, it's a character that I feel like I get pretty early, and um, I'm not really surprised by anything else after that point. So Rachel Weiss only makes my number eight for The Constant Gardener. Um, number, where am I at? Seven, right? Yeah. Sorry, my things are all messed up. Is that's where Rachel Vice is coming in. Um, so she would actually be number 10 for me had these category fraud ladies not been here. Um, not a great performance, not a worthy win. So at least she's not 10, I guess, but she is definitely last out of the actual supporting ladies for me. My number seven is Renee Zellweger for Cold Mountain. I don't hate this performance in the way that a lot of the internet people seem to. I think she's all right here. Yeah, it's a little bit much, but this movie is kind of a little bit all over the place. So it kind of works for me in a weird way because this movie is very strange. So um, Renee Zellweger uh, gets number seven for Cold Mountain. Uh, number six, I'm giving it to Kate Blanchett. Um, it's fine. But like I mentioned in that episode, if you're going to be Captain Hepburn, you got to give me the full package. Something felt missing. So six goes to Kate. Um, Kate uh, Blanchett also gets my number six for The Aviator. Um, I think she's perfectly all right here in The Aviator. But um, as good as she is, she doesn't quite leave an impression on me in the same way that these remaining Best Supporting Actress winners do. I admire her performance, but it, um, it doesn't stay with me for that long once the movie's over. So Kate Blanchett gets uh, number six for The Aviator. Number five, we made it to the halfway point. I'm giving it to Penelope Cruz. Um, she does well with what she's got in Vicky Cristina Barcelona, but out of who's left, she at least, you know, she can't exactly crack the top three for me, so she's at five. Jennifer Hudson is number five for me for Dreamgirls. She is great when she's singing, but she leaves more to be desired when she... Um, doesn't have music um, at her side. So um, even though she's powerful as hell um, with her vocal chops, um, she only makes my number five here for Dream Girls. Well, I'm going to follow your same exact sentiment with that, only I'm putting Hudson at four. Um, if you want to hear why, just rewind 15 seconds. That's why. Penelope Cruz is my number four for Vicky Cristina Barcelona. She is the best thing about that pretty dreadful movie. Uh, she doesn't come in until like literally an hour into the film, and there's maybe 30 minutes left at that point. And they are the best 30 minutes of the film because she is fantastic. And um, I just really dig her energy in that movie. And I think uh, she's great. So she gets my number four for Vicky Cristina Barcelona. My third place actually goes for Renee Zellweger. Um, I think this role definitely gets shit on a lot. Again, like this year with Sandra Bullock, I just feel like it's because of everyone else around her. If you take that away, though, she's really good. So I will give Zellweger number three. I'm giving... Hmm. My two and three are a little interchangeable. They're very different, 
and I like them for very different reasons. But I'm going to go with Tilda Swinton for Michael Clayton as my number three. I really dig this character. It's um, a character that I 100% that I 100% believe exists in real life. I think there's so many Karen Crowders out in the world, and they're all terrifying. But one thing about this performance that I think I forgot to mention in our 2007 episode that I think makes the performance even better is Tilda Swinton and the director give Karen Crowder these moments of humanity, which I think makes her even scarier. These moments where she's say, she's like, there's a scene where she's in her underwear, like rehearsing in the mirror, the speech she's about to give. And she keeps stopping and restarting at any slight mistake that she makes. And she is clearly nervous and uncomfortable and doesn't always like the things that she's doing. And yet she does them anyway. And I think that's what makes her so vile as a person. So I uh, love Tilda Swinton, but I'm only giving her third best of the supporting actress winners. That actually shocked me. I'm not going to lie. Um, definitely expected her to be a runner-up at least. Um, with that said, Tilda Swinton is my runner-up. Um, first of all, there's no denying that Monique is the best winner in this category of the decade. Swinton, though, is fantastic. Um, she is one of, well, she's my second favorite in this category. Um, powerful, horrifying, real, and I dig it. And then Monique, of course, if you want to know why, just listen to this episode all over again and enjoy us for another round. Yeah. Well, my my three and two are pretty interchangeable, um, but my number two is Catherine Zeta-Jones here for Chicago. Um, I don't quite vibe with the category fraud claim uh the the character of elma kelly is so downplayed in the movie and it's so much roxy centric that i'm okay with her being in supporting but um velma in the chicago film is just straight fire and she's the best thing about the movie and i want the whole movie to be about velma and um i think Catherine zeta jones is just electric from start to finish in chicago and she's a lot of She's a huge reason for why the film is so successful. But there is no stopping Monique. She is the best of the decade. There's absolutely no question. Look at that. We agreed again. Let's see if we agree with lead. Okay. Well, our leading ladies in real life were Julia Roberts for Aaron Brockovich, Halle Berry for Monsters Ball, Nicole Kidman for The Hours, Charlize Theron for Monster, Hilary Swank for Million Dollar Baby, Reese Witherspoon for Walk the Line, Helen Mirren for The Queen, Marion Cotillard for La Vie en Rose, Kate Winslet for The Reader, and Sandra Bullock for The Blind Side. And um, I'm just going to put Sandra Bullock at number 10 here. Um, yeah, that's that's all. Sandra Bullock at 10. I'm actually shocked about that because of this reason. Number 10, Kate Winslet, wrong category, next. I honestly can't recall if I disqualified her, but she's my number nine. So just performance alone, um, she's not very good. So she wasn't going to get above that anyway. Um, I don't recall what I said about category, but uh, I can see the argument for it. But she's my nine anyway, so there's that. Number nine goes to the final category fraud of this lineup. That's Nicole Kidman in The Hours. Um, Yep, just wrong category, so she's got to go nine. But I do like her better than Kate Winslet in The Reader. Um, Reese Witherspoon is my number eight for Walk the Line. She's 
perfectly all right in Walk the Line. Um, I just don't think that movie gives her very many opportunities to really do anything that we haven't seen from Reese Witherspoon or don't believe that she can already do. It's just a pretty safe performance. So uh, Reese Witherspoon gets my number eight for Walk the Line. Sandra Bullock is showing up here at number eight. Listen why 20 minutes ago. Uh, number seven for me is Hilary Swank for A Million Dollar Baby. Um, again, I don't think she's bad here. I just don't find the character as, or the performance as interesting as some of the other ones that we have here. She does some very interesting things um, with her voice and body, especially when her, when she's limited in the last act of the film with her body, and she can basically only act from the neck up. Hilary Swank uh, does some very um, crafty things there, but um, she only makes my number seven for Million Dollar Baby. Number seven, Reese Witherspoon. She's fine. She's Reese doing a Reesey thing. Um, so Reese doing Reese at seven. Uh, my number six is Helen Mirren for The Queen. Um, she has a great presence. You 100% believe that she is the queen. But after a certain point, I found myself kind of bored with the movie and honestly, a, the performance as well a little bit, even though she has a natural regalness about her. Um, it's just number six for me. Well, number six is also Helen Mirren. Um, same exact thing that you said. What was that thing that you mentioned in that episode that always makes you laugh that she says? Do you remember? Well, she had in her Oscar clip, she's like out in the wilderness and she's mm-hmm. like wrecked her Jeep or some nonsense. And there's like a deer that just shows up while she's sitting on a rock. And she just like looks at this deer and just goes, Oh, beauty. And oh, it yeah. is the phoniest <laughs> nonsense in the entire movie. It just makes me crackle every time I watch it. And the fact that that was her Oscar clip. I know. Who picks those? <laughs> it's me now, right? Yeah, I lost her. I lost my spot. Okay. Halle Berry is my number five for Monsters Ball. Um, this is another win that kind of gets shit on a lot, but it's a win that I had a new appreciation for when I watched this movie again for the first time in a long time and really zeroed in on her and really thought about what was going on in this character's life and everything she had been going through for the 10 years leading up to this moment. A lot of the choices that she makes that a lot of people criticize Halle Berry for actually kind of made sense to me with that new thought and context. But um, she's just in the middle of this uh, lineup for me. So Halle Berry is number five for Monsters Ball. Number five, I'm actually going to get to Charlize Theron. She's, she's fine. Um, like I said, in 2003, I think I know I'm one of the few who think this, but I think she's weirdly miscast as um Eileen Wernos and the makeup is really just doing the job there. So she's fine. So she gets halfway down the road for me. Marion Cotillard is my number four for Olivia Rose. I think this is a really great showcase of Marion Cotillard's talents. Um, you get to see Edith Piaf from very early age into her elderly years, the highs and lows of her career. And um, I think Marion is... Um, fantastic from start to finish. She has a real specificity to her embodiment of this real life person. And I really dig it, but uh, she gets to be my number four in this lineup. And that's as far as she gets for me. Um, number four, I'm going to give it to Hillary Swank. 
she she's good she is good despite her being my fifth spot in 04 she's good um as the winners per se um but i think it's just one of those things like you said at the best once she really only does the neck acting that's kind of like when her best shows up and unlike my final three they all kind of like do the thing the whole performance where she only gets the last little chunk so she gets four my final three is really interchangeable and i could see it going any other order on any given day but what i'm feeling right now I'm going with Julia Roberts at number three for Aaron Brockovich. I really like her in this performance. It's another performance that I had a newfound appreciation for when I watched it again for our 2000 episode. Um, But I can't even say that the other two just do more for me because I really do like this top three here. Um, Just right now in this moment, uh, Julia Roberts is only cracking number three for Aaron Brockovich. Well, that's funny because Julie Roberts is also cracking number three for me. Um, as much as I really hate the fact that she won over Ellen Burstyn for Reckoning for a Dream here, when it comes to these 10 ladies, she really is good. She's really damn good. Um, but she's not win worthy for me as the best of the decade. So Roberts at three. So, um, again, any given day, this could change, but I'm going to go um, what I'm feeling in the moment, which might surprise people, but I'm going with Charlize Theron as my runner-up for Monster. Um, this is a fantastic performance. Um, it's iconic for so many reasons. It's a tour de force, and Charlize Theron goes to some really dark places that are very fascinating to watch. But there's something very special about Nicole Kidman's performance in The Hours that really does something for me. There is, I keep using this word, but I think it keeps applying here. There's a real specificity to her portrayal of Virginia Woolf. It feels like every gesture is um, electric here with her. Uh, some people say that she's hiding behind makeup and a prosthetic nose, but I think she's using them as a tool, as a way to amplify her performance. I don't think she's hiding by any means. I think this is a fabulous outing for Nicole Kidman. I don't buy the category thing. Um, I think The Hours is a film with three leads, and I don't disqualify her for that. Um, I think it's a fantastic performance, and it's a, if not my favorite Nicole Kidman, it's certainly one of them. And uh, The Hours just takes me to a very weird place whenever I revisit it, and uh, Nicole Kidman, I think, has a lot to do with it. So um, she gets my best of the decade win for the leading ladies for The Hours. Well, we are definitely not agreeing here um, because my top two have so different than your top two. Um, number two plays a big part because of the historicalness of this. So I'm giving Halle Berry the second spot. Marin Cotillard is my number one. Let me start with Berry. Berry is good. Berry is really good. I think I gave her third that year, but she's still really good with these winners. Um she gives a really, really good performance, but I also got to play the campaign political part of this as well, because this is the first and unfortunately only time that we've had a uh, black actress win this role. Um, if we're going by Academy Queen standards, it 
should have been Diana Ross first for the both of us, followed by Dan- Diane Carroll. But um, in a realistic world, uh, Barry was the first. And therefore, because of that, I-, I couldn't put her any lower than at least two because it is such an important moment in Academy and film history. Um, it opened the door, but unfortunately no one has followed, and hopefully that will change soon. Um, but Barry at two, Cotillard at one. Um, Co- Marianne Cotillard's win is the only win from the Academy in this league, ladies, that I agree with this whole decade. Um, so that really shouldn't come as a surprise. Um, Marianne is transcendent as uh, Edith Piaf and I think is miles above the other nine ladies here. But uh, yeah, I would say the best for lead of the decade for me is Marianne Cotillard in lead and Monique in supporting. Yeah, my best is uh, Nicole Kidman for the hours and Monique in supporting. There you have it, children. Another decade gone. Wow. Those 10 years just flew by. Flew by. It's crazy. Like, it's what, April? And we started recording in January? Mm-hmm. Nuts. This is Nuggin Futs. Right. <laughs> right. Well, 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 we will see you next decade. Enjoy the break. Join us on Patreon. You guys will get two bonus episodes a month. Awesome interviews. A whole bunch of fun stuff. Yes, that's uh, patreon.com slash academyqueens. Six bucks a month. Come on. You literally go to Starbucks and pay six bucks for a coffee. Y'all can afford six bucks to listen to us. We give really good content. Yes, Love you guys. One Starbucks costs six dollars. That's ridiculous. <laughs> One Starbucks. I love that. Well, on the count of three, we're going to give a big goodbye to the 2000s. We'll see you next decade. Ready? One, two, three. Bye. Bye.